Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by... Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. You're listening to episode 165 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, Jimmy will be answering more weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today, of course, is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, since this is a fifth Friday in July, we don't want to leave you without an episode this week, and so we bring you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy, what weird questions will you be answering this time? We're going to be talking about questions like, do you need to get baptized again after going through a Star Trek transporter? Would a transported priest need to be ordained again? What happens with the guardian angels of frozen embryos? Do people eat and drink in hell? How did the Holy House of Loretto get to Italy? And what's up with animal-human hybrids? Mm, Okay, those are some good questions. So let's listen to your answers. I'm ready. Uh, Ron, uh, via email, asks the following question. Is it possible that we are made in the image and likeness of God due to the grandfather paradox of Jesus assuming human flesh to begin with? I don't understand that question, Jimmy. I just realized. Okay. I do. Okay. So we should probably first explain what the grandfather paradox is for people who may not be familiar with it. You've probably heard of it, but maybe not under that name. Um, The grandfather paradox is a proposed time travel paradox. Uh, The idea is that you go back in time to when your grandfather was alive, but before your father was born and you kill your grandfather. And as a result of that, your father is never born. And so you are never born. But if you were never born, how could you go back in time and kill your grandfather? So we have a paradox. It looks like you do go back in time and kill your grandfather, but then that act makes it impossible for you to go back in time and kill your grandfather because you never exist. I see. So, there, and there are various solutions that have been proposed by scientists and philosophers for how to resolve the grandfather paradox. In this case, what I think Rob is asking is, since God foreknew that Jesus would incarnate as a human being, could that have influenced God's decision in how to make mankind so that we would be in the image of 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 God leading up to his incarnation as a human being. I see. All right. Now, now, in terms of answering the question, there are a few things to point out. The first one is uh, the church doesn't typically understand, the church does not understand the image of God as being a physical image. Um, 
even though that's the language used in Genesis, the image and likeness of God, Catholic theology has not understood that as being tied to our specific physical form, you know, with a with a head and two arms and two legs and a nose and things like that, that standard human shape. Instead, the image and likeness of God has been understood more along the lines of our function in creation, uh, that we represent God to the material world. So we have rational souls that enable us to relate to God and to represent him to the world and to rule over the earth on his behalf. Um, There's a, a paper that was prepared by the International Theological Commission around 2004 called Communion and Stewardship. Um, and it's not an it's not a uh, the International Theological Commission is not an organ of the magisterium, but the magisterium does approve the publication of its documents. And it goes into what the image of God is and how Catholic theology understands that um, in a good bit of depth. So check out that document for more background on what the image of God is in terms of answering Rob's question, though. Well, uh, let's let's answer it first in terms of the church's understanding of what the image of God is. Could God have seen from his eternal perspective the fact that Jesus would incarnate in as a human being with the human nature that ha- has a rational human soul and that allows him to relate to God and that uh, allows him to represent God to the world and to exercise the governing functions that humans can exercise with respect to creation? And could he then have used that as a basis for planning the fact that we would have the image of God in that kind of spiritual sense. Sure, it's possible. Um, from his eternal perspective, God knows what's going to happen and, in any given time frame, and so he can set up things in earlier time frames to prepare the way for that. So he could have done that. What about the image of God, though, to answer the question a second way, uh, what about the image of God in terms of the human physical form, the two arms, two legs, bipedal, feather, you know, featherless biped, shape that we have. Um, Well, yeah, once again, uh, God could have decided I'm going to have my son incarnate with this physical form. And so I'm going to set things up earlier so that there will be a species that has that physical form so that my son can incarnate into it. God could do that. So in, in terms of Rob's question, is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Do we have evidence that that happened. I am not aware of any evidence we have that would support that that's that was actually God's decision procedure. Uh, one would be free to make arguments and propose evidence, but I'm not aware of any of them. So I would say it's possible, but I don't have a particular reason to think that that's the case. Rob, thank you for that weird question. Up next, a question from Chris who asks, well, first of all, he says, my friends came up with a fun, weird question for the next show. And now he asks, If I am transporting the Eucharist in my car, can I use the carpool lane? This reminds me of an episode of The Simpsons uh, from some years ago where Marge was concerned about the amount Homer was drinking. And she was reading like a quiz out of a magazine to tell if you're a problem drinker or not. And she asks Homer, do you ever drink when you're alone? And Homer says, does the Lord count as a person? And she says, no. 
Um, and for purposes of that quiz, no, because no one would ever drink alone if the Lord counted as a person for purposes of that quiz. Um, in terms of answering Chris's question, this is really a matter for civil law because it's civil law that determines which lanes you get to use in the highway. You know, like here oh, in yeah. America, here in America, the civil law says drive in the left in the uh, right lane in England. It says drive in in the other lane. So um, it's going to be civil law and that's going to vary from one jurisdiction to another. So I can't answer for your jurisdiction. However, I would suppose suppose that in the great majority of jurisdictions, they would say transporting the Eucharist in your car does not count as an additional person for purposes of this law. Um, and thus, you could not use the carpool lane merely because you're transporting the Eucharist in your car in those jurisdictions where you need two human beings in the car to use the carpool lane. On the other hand, I can imagine other scenarios. I mean, you could have a super religious jurisdiction where they've written the law to allow the Eucharist to count as a legal person for purposes of carpool lanes. I'm not aware of any of those, but and I doubt there are any. But what might happen, and I, I think there's be a higher probability of this happening, is there might be special exceptions that would allow you to use the uh, carpool lane if you're carrying the Eucharist, even if it doesn't, even if the law doesn't recognize the Eucharist as a separate legal person. For example, suppose you are a priest transporting the Eucharist to administer viaticum to someone in the hospital who is in danger of dying, um, and so you're going to perform the last rites. Well, I can imagine a variety of different circumstances, jurisdictions saying that's a special circumstance. Sure. We need to make it easy for priests to get to the hospital quickly in that kind of situation, and so you could um, use the carpool lane in that kind of situation and say, yeah, I've got all my stuff to do the last rites. I have my brevi I have my, uh, my book of rights. I have the Eucharist. I have my holy oil to anoint them and I'm headed to the hospital and it's urgent. And a police officer who pulled over such a priest would likely say, please father be on your way. Uh, Chris, thank you. That was a good question. Thanks very, very much. Next one comes from Rob, uh, who says, Jimmy do frozen embryos make their guardian angels wait with them? Well, frozen embryos aren't conscious. The brain hasn't developed enough at the embryo stage to have conscious thought. So they don't make anyone do anything. On the other hand, guardian angels are very responsible and care about their charges. And so if a guardian angel has been assigned to a frozen embryo, then that guardian angel will wait as long as necessary to do what it can to help out that frozen embryo. Um, so it's not so much as them being forced by the embryo to wait. Um, it's something they would voluntarily do as part of their assignment. I should mention there is a question in Catholic theology about when people get their guardian angels. It has been pretty much universally agreed that by the time you're baptized, you have a guardian angel. And it's also generally agreed that by the time you're born, you have a guardian angel. I would go further and say, I'm pretty certain that 
people have guardian angels from the moment of conception. But um, that's something that the church hasn't hasn't given a definitive ruling on. All righty. Um, let's go to Stephen, who asks, will the bodies of people in hell or heaven, for that matter, need to eat and drink? Will our bodies just subsist without sustenance? So we have different passages that suggest different things on this question in Scripture. Uh, On the one hand, we have passages that do depict heaven as a feast. And if that's taken literally, you know, the wedding feast of the Lamb, if that's taken literally, then we would at least eat and drink. Whether we would need to is another and separate question, but that would at least suggest eating and drinking. Also, Revelation depicts uh, the heavenly city as having uh, the tree of life in it with its fruit. And so consequently, if that were to be taken literally, one might suppose we would be eating fruit from the tree of life. On the other hand, these passages tend to be highly symbolic, and so they're not necessarily meant to be taken literally. This imagery of fruit of the tree of life can just be a symbol of immortality, and the image of a feast with God can be a sign of rejoicing and spiritual communion with God, even if food isn't literally involved. So those, even though there are passages suggesting that, it's not something that is altogether definitive just from those verses, because we also have other verses like in 1 Corinthians, where St. Paul is talking about the resurrection body, and he says, well, God made food for the body and the body for food, but the Lord's going to just, or the stomach for uh, food and food for the stomach, but he's going to destroy them both. And that suggests that in our resurrected form, we may not eat and drink. One of the things that would suggest we won't need to eat and drink, at least the saved or really anybody, is the fact we're going to be immortal in these physical forms. And so um, it, it we won't die. We won't presumably be able to die. And therefore, eating food would not be essential for us. You could say, well, maybe God just gives you a continual food supply, and so you never get hungry, which would also be something else. Hunger is painful, and so we, since we won't have pain, we won't have hunger, and uh, and that would lead, again, in the direction of we won't need food because the purpose of hunger is to get us to eat the food that we need. And so if we're not going to have hunger, we won't have the signal to go ahead and eat, and that would... Um, suggest we won't need food. Um, I would say this is a matter of theological speculation. My own inclination would be to say we won't need to eat, but we may be able to eat and may in fact eat on occasion, not because we need to, but simply as a way of enjoying God's creation. Now, Stephen asks not just about those in heaven, but what about those in hell? With their situation, I can imagine the situation being a little different. I would suppose that they also don't need to eat in the sense that they'll die without it because they're also going to be immortal, but they won't have the freedom from pain that the blessed do. And so consequently, I could imagine, at least hypothetically, a situation where the lost do hunger 
and um, in a physical way and may not be able to eat to satisfy that hunger. However, that's just speculation. I don't know that that would be the case. What they will literally hunger for is God, but they will have decided and will continue to hold that I don't want to satisfy that hunger. And so that spiritual hunger for God will be one of the sources of their self-imposed frustration. All right. Um, we'll leave it there. That really makes me not uh, want to go to hell. But uh, thank you for that question. Good. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> the desired effect, I guess. Thanks, Stephen, for that question. Up next, question from Rob. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken this hour. This one comes from Rob. How was the Holy House of Loretto transported from Nazareth to Italy? Okay, so for people who may not be familiar, uh, the Holy House of Loretto is a shrine that is in Loretto, Italy. It's in a church, and it is held to be uh, a house that Mary lived in in Nazareth. And according to legend, it was transported from Italy to uh, from Nazareth in the Holy Land to Italy in the 1200s as a way of saving it from, you know, the failure of the Crusades and the fact that Muslims were uh, once again reclaiming this territory and could endanger the house. And it was transported, according to legend, by angels. So like angels picked it up and moved it to save it from being destroyed or desecrated by Muslim forces. Well, the answer to this one, based on research that has been done in the last 120 years, suggests the truth is somewhere in the middle. It looks like the the stones of the house were transported from the Holy Land, and they were transported by, in Latin, angeli, which does mean angels. You know, angelus means a, a, an angel, so angeli means the angels, but not the kind of angels you're thinking. A family, in fact, a Byzantine Greek family named Angelos, oh. which in Latin became the Angeli family. And there's various documentary and archaeological evidence suggesting that. If you look up Wikipedia's article on the Holy House of Loretto, it'll talk about that. And if you go to the official web page, it's in Italian, but, you know, you can have your web browser translated for you. If you go to the official web page of the Holy House of Loretto in Italy, it also talks about the Angeli family and their role in transporting the house. That is uh, uh, the the answer was actually weirder than the question on that one. That <laughs> I, that that I like that. Thanks very much uh, for that uh, question, Rob. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Next comes from Keith. What happens to a person who can't remember their sins through memory loss or from say an accident, aging, or a disease such as Alzheimer's? Do they cease being culpable for their sins if they can't remember them to repent and ask forgiveness and reconcile with God? You don't cease to be culpable for your sins just because you can't remember it. So that's a problem. You need to repent now. And so consequently, let's say you murder a dozen people and then you get Alzheimer's and you can't remember that you've murdered anybody. Well, you're still guilty of those murders because you set your will in such a way that you were willing to commit murder and you did. And unless you repent and move your will off of the murder setting, 
then your will is still, you know, set against God. And so you do need to repent and get your will off that murder setting and ask for God's forgiveness. But here's the good news. You don't need to remember the murders to do that. All you need to do is be able to say to God, I'm sorry for what I did, whatever it may have been for all my past sins. I'm sorry. And I wish I hadn't done them. And that'll take care of the murders, because even if you don't remember what you're repenting of, God knows what you've done that you need to repent of. So this redirects your will away from murder and back to God, even if you don't remember the murders. But because it's possible to forget and you might not repent afterwards, you it's important to stay in a state of grace as much as you can. Repent as soon as you commit the mortal sin. Don't wait uh, in case you get hit by a bus or you lose your memory or who knows what happens and you don't have a later opportunity to repent. You want to repent while you still have the opportunity. And by the way, this is also the same reason why at the end of a typical confession, people will say, and for all my past sins, I'm sorry, because, you know, there are various times all of us don't remember things we've done or the specific number of times we did them. Um, And so fortunately, we have a merciful God who, as long as we direct our will to him and say, I'm sorry for everything I've done that was against you, I want to be forgiven for that. God is willing to forgive us. And so we don't have to worry in that sense about sins we may have forgotten. Uh, I'm really uh, happy for that question, Keith. Thank you so much for that question. I, uh, you know, because of the, the virus, I didn't get to go to a confession for a long time. I just got to go. I, first of all, I want to recommend people go to confession. It it's, brings you so much joy to maybe not to go, but when you're leaving, uh, it, it comes, but I was in the midst of confession and I forgot, I knew there was something else I wanted to say and I forgot it. And the priest was very encouraging and was like, well, maybe as we're talking, it'll come back to you and all that. But if it doesn't come back to you, then as, as long as you're sorry for, you know, as long as you intended to confess it, you're all right. It, mm-hmm. it, it didn't, it didn't in fact come back to me, but I, I, we can get a legal, I guess what I'm saying is we can get a little legalistic about it. God's mercy is not legalistic. Yeah. Is that fair to say? And if, Yeah. And I know we're coming to the break and so we're filling a little bit of time. But if people want to see an interesting dramatization of this, check out the Babylon 5 episode Passing Through Gethsemane, which involves someone who was a murderer and was mind wiped and then repented and became a monk. This has actually happened then, at least in the world of Babylon 5. All right. We'll take That's a quick right. break. Right back with more weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Hillary G., Joseph A., Matthew N., Brett A., and Elizabeth K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. This one comes from Patrick. Patrick asks, 
what could the physics of the new heavens and new earth be like such that this would no longer disintegrate due to entropy, etc.? So uh, Patrick raises a very interesting question um, because we know that the human form is not going to disintegrate or die or um, otherwise experience the problems in the next life that we have in this one. Um, And that could be due to a radical change in the physics of the universe. So when God renovates the universe, it it in, it involves a completely different set of physics. What that would be like is very difficult to imagine. Uh, f- physicists have imagined how the laws of the universe could be very different than the ones we're living in, or than the one we're living in, and they've proposed, you know, if you know the mass of the electron could be different, and the uh, gravitational uh, force could be stronger or weaker, and the number of dimensions themselves could be different. We might not live it. There might be a universe that doesn't have three spatial dimensions and one dimension of time. There could have some other number of dimensions. And so there has been a lot of speculation about how the how the laws of the universe could be different. And a good number of physicists, I'm not convinced of this myself, I'm not opposed to it either, but a good number of physicists actually think that there likely are parallel universes that have different laws of physics than the ones that govern our universe. Having said that, one of the things that they've noted is that the laws of physics that do govern our universe seem to be very finely tuned to allow for the existence of life. And, uh, you know, if the mass of the electron was even slightly different, atoms wouldn't form in the same way and we wouldn't exist. If the gravitational constant were just a little bit different, stars wouldn't form atoms of the right kind and you would never get biological life. Um, And so it's actually been pointed out we live in a kind of Goldilocks universe where everything is just right for life. And. People have speculated, well, could there be other configurations that are different than ours, but that are also just right for life? And hypothetically, sure, there could be. And hypothetically, there could be a universe with laws that don't require physical forms like ours to disintegrate and fall apart over time. Um, So that's conceptually possible. How likely it is that there are such universes is something that people could disagree about and have different opinions about, but it's at least conceptually possible. But there's another way, and and what those would be like, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not a physicist. I would assume that entropy would work differently in those universes. Entropy is the tendency, or one way of explaining entropy, entropy is the tendency of energy to move from a concentrated state to a diffused state. So this is why coffee cools down when you when you set it out in a room, because the heat moves from the concentrated state in the coffee and becomes diffused in the room, so there's less heat energy in the coffee. Uh, it's also the reason stars shine. Because the light energy that's concentrated in the star radiates out from the star and 
that's why we see starlight. So entropy is a very fundamental property of the universe, but it's entropy that causes systems like our bodies to use energy and run down and break down over time. It's also why we need to eat because you, we need continual new supply of energy to keep our bodies going. And so if we were living in a universe where the universe was built in such a way that we would not naturally have bodies that decay, I would suppose the law of entropy would have to be very different in that universe than it is in ours. Exactly what that would be, I don't know, but I would suspect it would have to be that. But there is another possibility besides the laws of the universe being different that would allow us to be immortal. And this is actually the view that St. Thomas Aquinas supported. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, and he didn't have the concept of entropy to explain it, but according to St. Thomas Aquinas, every natural material system, like our bodies, will run down and break down over time unless it is supported by divine grace. And so that's kind of the situation that we have pictured symbolically in early Genesis. Adam and Eve's bodies were physical and they would have died if they're kicked out of the garden and did die once they're kicked out of the garden and no longer had access to the tree of life. But if they had remained in the garden, if they hadn't sinned, then they would have been able to eat of the tree of life and eating that fruit would have kept them alive. So that would be their physical bodies being propped up by a gift of divine grace. And so Aquinas would say that uh, our resurrected bodies will, be, even though they'll still be material and would on their own run down, they won't be on their own because God's going to prop them up by his grace. And so that could be the solution to our immortality in the future. It may not be that the laws of the universe will be any different. It may just be God will supply us with the grace that we need to keep our bodies in good running order. Thank you, Patrick, for that uh, weird question for weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Uh, next question is from Kelly, and she says, if a Star Trek style transporter kills the person and creates a clone with that person's memories, would a person who gets transported in such a manner have to be baptized or confirmed again? Would a priest who gets transported have to be ordained again? What about confession? What if you commit a mortal sin, then get transported Would the clone with your memories have to go to confession? <laughs> this is a weird okay. question. Yeah. So, and there's several sub questions. So we'll want to go through them one at a time. Um, first, though, I should point out Star Trek is inconsistent about whether its transporters actually kill you. Some of the episodes seem to imply that they do kill you and then clone you. Other episodes seem to imply that that's not the case. But let's suppose, per Kelly's question, that it does kill you and clone you. So what would be the case with these transporter clones? Could you give me the first of the sub questions she asks? OK, she she says, um, uh, would a person who gets transported in such a manner have to be baptized or confirmed again? Yes, because the original person who died and had the uh, the indelible marks of baptism and confirmation on his souls, that person has died and gone to heaven. The new person is just a very old baby or physically old baby <laughs> and therefore will need to be baptized and confirmed all over again as part of Christian initiation. I know some people who are very old babies. At least, uh -huh. at least they act like it. I'm not looking I at you, too. Darren. I'm not looking at you. Don't, yeah. <laughs> He took that personally. Uh, OK, would, 
would a priest who got transported have to be ordained again? Yes, because the original priest died and hopefully went to heaven, and the new person is once again a physically very old baby who is going to need to be ordained again in order to exercise priestly powers. Having said that, he because he has inherited all of the memories of the original priest, he wouldn't necessarily need to go to seminary again oh, yeah. because he still has all the knowledge he needs to be a priest. What he's missing is the sacrament of holy orders. Uh, what about confession? What if uh, I'm going to give this to you as one question. What about confession? Okay. What if a, you commit a mortal sin, then get transported? Would the clone with your memories have to go to confession? So if you commit a mortal sin and then get transported, I really hope you repented before the transport <laughs> because you died in a state of mortal sin if you didn't repent first. Also, the transport, if you know that this is going to kill you, it would it would it would in most circumstances constitute suicide, which would be another mortal sin. So hopefully this was an involuntary transport they did while trying to do you a favor and you didn't consent to being transported. Um, but the resulting transporter clone has a has a new physical body and therefore a new soul and the new soul has not done the mortal sin it may have memories of of the person it it feels like it is having committed the mortal sin but it really didn't and therefore it doesn't need to go to confession to take care of the mortal sin because it doesn't have one instead it needs to be baptized and probably go to some kind of counseling to come to grips with the fact you don't want to commit mortal sin and you're not actually the same person. Incidentally, there is something of a fictional parallel to this situation as well. But in comic books, for uh, many years, there was, uh, and there still is a hero in DC Comics known as Swamp Thing. And Swamp Thing, for many years, thought that he was the scientist Alec Holland who fell into a swamp and then became hybridized with a bunch of plants, making him the swamp thing. But it was later revealed, nope, Alec Holland went to heaven and swamp thing just inherited his memories. So he thought he's actually a plant who thought he was Alec Holland when he wasn't just like a transporter clone might feel like the person who got transported, but actually is a new person that just has the same memories. Michael uh, from the Internet asks, Jimmy, if hell is complete and final separation from God and God is necessary for existence, how do people and angels exist in hell? And he's got another one. I'll give it to you and you can decide how you want to take them together and mm -hmm. take them separately. Another one is the devil in hell yet. And if not, are the people in hell waiting for him to get there? Or are they all waiting until the end and judgment to enter hell? Okay, so there's sort of three questions there. The first one, um, if hell is complete and final separation from God and God is necessary for existence, how do people and angels exist in hell? Well, this one kind of answers itself if you just run the logic backwards. People and angels in hell would not exist if given that God is necessary for existence. Therefore, hell is not the complete and final separation from God. God still continues to be connected to people in hell, at least by providing them with existence. And so there is still a connection between them and God. God is connected with everything in reality in that way, because if something is not 
being created by God or sustained in existence by God, um, then it would not exist. Since they do exist, they must be in connection with God, at least causally. So how do we understand hell is a separation from God? Well, it's not a causal separation from God. It's a spiritual separation from God, where you have closed yourself off to God as the source of grace and the source of goodness and uh, and happiness. And so you frustrated yourself by closing yourself off spiritually from God. But it doesn't mean you lose all causal connection with God. In terms of the next question, is the devil in hell yet? Well, um, the evidence would seem to indicate no, because uh, in the book of Revelation, we see the devil cast down from heaven. This is in chapter 12. We see the devil cast down um, and onto earth, but he knows his time is short. And then in chapter 20, we have him bound in a place called the abyss for a thousand years, which has generally been understood as corresponding to the church age, that this thousand years is it's a symbol of a long period of time where the devil is bound in such a way that he can't deceive the nations anymore. And so that would suggest at least a limitation on the devil's abilities right now. He can't stop the gospel, but he has not yet reached his final state, uh, which is depicted as being in the lake of fire. After the thousand years, he gets released for a little while. He causes some more problems. And then finally, he's put into the lake of fire at the last judgment and so or after the Battle of Armageddon. And so it would seem that he is under some restrictions now, which is depicted as him being put in the abyss. But he's hasn't yet reached the final state of uh, of of being in the lake of fire. Having said that. This this is symbolic language that is meant to communicate spiritual realities that are more complex and that go beyond what humans can really imagine in the present life. And so if someone said, well, could the devil kind of be experiencing hell right now, even if he's not fully in hell right now, I would say, yeah, he could be kind of experiencing hell right now. Um, he's already made the spiritual break with God. And is going to and done so definitively. So he's going to be experiencing some negative consequences of that. But he hasn't yet reached the final set of consequences that he's heading toward. And this also seems to be reflected uh, by other demons. It seems to mirror the state of other demons we know about. Like when Jesus talks to the Gadarene demoniac, they say, have you come to torture us before the time? And they're thinking about the end of the world when the final judgment will happen. And because he's not here to torture them before the time, he lets them go into the pigs instead and make a very interesting point about the power of the Jewish God to the Gentile people living in that region. Uh, thanks. Uh, finally, oh. finally, in terms of humans being in hell, they're not waiting on the devil. Uh, humans in this age who die out out of a state of grace would go to their final destiny, even though they don't have their bodies. 
with them. So they would be experiencing the state of being lost spiritually right now. And then after the resurrection, they'll be reunited with their bodies and will experience that state in both body and soul. Uh, thank you very much for the, the question, uh, Michael. Appreciate it. It's Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. Uh, and up next is Vicky. Uh, and this is a bit long, but I think it's worth uh, getting into a bit. Uh, this is one I'm actually very, very interested to hear your answer on, Jimmy. Uh, what are the spiritual and perhaps biological implications of combining human and pig or cow DNA? Besides having no justifiable health consideration and being seriously wrong for tampering with trying or tampering with and trying to create previously non-existing life forms. Is it possible that a cow or pig could come to the realization that will, it will end up as a steak or bacon. If it is well known that trauma from violent wars can be passed down and sudden unknown memories, which seem like deja vu do happen. Is there enough information here to make human animal uh, chimera unequivocally, unequivocally illegal? Uh, who do we call? Okay, the last question is the simplest, so we'll do that first. The people you would want to call is your local governmental representatives. Um, you would want to, if you want to, if you want to ban human-animal hybridization, go to the lawmakers. That's the place to do it. In terms of, and there are several interesting things here. In terms of the spiritual, biological implications of combining human and animal DNA. There's nothing wrong in principle with creating life forms that have not existed before. Uh, God has created, according to the uh, fossil record, God has created different life forms over over geological time spans. And even and he's and he's then made humans his representatives on Earth with governance over nature so that we can um, modify existing life forms. And we've even done that unintentionally over the last several thousand years. That's how we got dogs. They used to be wolves and we made them into dogs. That's how we got horses and domestic cats and all of the domesticated animals. They're different than their, than their, uh, forebears were before domestication. We've also done the same thing with plants. Uh, the grapefruit did not exist before about 800 years ago, if memory serves. All of the various cultivars that we use in agriculture are, and, and even just in ornamental gardens are things that we have modified either unintentionally or frequently intentionally. We've done selective breeding to produce life forms with the characteristics we're looking for. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. It, as long as it's a non-human, it's within the power that God has given us to manipulate and to guide and shape. We want to be responsible in how we do that. We want to be kind and compassionate in how we do that, but it's within the authority God's given us. The question becomes when you start introducing human stuff into it. Well, if you add a single human gene, and we have thousands of genes, you add a single human gene to a non-human life form, you're not making a human. You're just tweaking its DNA a little bit. But if you add more and more human genes, you can arrive at a point where you're going to have a creature that is so human, it starts to have human-like consciousness. And exactly where that line is, is blurry. It would need to be pretty, pretty close 
to being a human, though, because even our closest relatives, the chimpanzees, they share more than 90 percent. I mean, it's almost like it's like more than 95 percent of the same DNA as us. And they don't have human like consciousness. So you'd have to add a very great deal of human DNA to something to get a creature with human like consciousness. Um, but. Once you do, you're getting something that is going to be the subject of rights. And at that point, it's going to be immoral to create such a creature because it, it, it would violate the same provisions as creating babies in test tubes and things. That's not how humans were designed to be created. God has not given us rights over other human beings to the extent he's given us rights over animals and plants. So there is a point where this would become a problem. It's probably not as close as people might imagine, though, because like even the chimpanzees with almost identical DNA still are not humans. They're still animals. Um, But if you did create somehow a cow or a pig with not with human like consciousness, then uh, it would be immoral to treat it like a cow or a pig. It would also, I would say, be immoral to create it in the first place because it's human-like consciousness. Is It makes it too close to us to be within the legitimate purview we have over animals. One thing that Vicky mentions, she says, if it's well known that trauma from violent wars can be passed down and sudden unknown memories which seem like deja vu could happen, I think what she's going for there is, would it have memories of slaughterhouses yeah. that its ancestors had been through? Well, probably not, because ancestors going into a slaughterhouse would already have reproduced. And so the changes that get made from traumatic experiences would not uh, be heritable because the slaughterhouse experience would come after the reproduction that led to the current animal. Having said that, and I don't know specifically about memories being passed down from wars, but for people who may wonder, there is such a thing called uh, inherited memories that scientists have found. Uh, One of the ways they did this was by taking rats, a common laboratory animal, and giving them electric shocks. And whenever they play, whenever they gave them an electric shock, they would expose them to the scent of roses. And then they found their children would react to the scent of roses with panic, even though they had never been shocked. So they think this is passed down epigenetically based on the way the genes are activated. But it's a fascinating subject, and people may not have heard of that before. So what Vicky is talking about does have some basis in science. Vicky, thank you for the question. Uh, that was a truly weird ending to Jimmy uh, to Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. The, the rats remember. They, oh, they are not forgetting people. And uh, wow. So if I see any rea- rats uh, reacting to roses, I know what happened. Jimmy, those were some truly weird questions, but some great answers as well. Uh, Folks, send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next episode, we're going to be talking about the Bible and specifically, we're going to be talking about the Exodus event and what does the historical evidence say about whether the Exodus happened or not. There's a very interesting story here and you're not going to want to miss it. 
Excellent. So until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>